I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Hey, welcome everybody once again to another edition of I-94 right here on WLPN Chicago. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I'm joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Good morning, Jamie. And today we are speaking with two of the three authors behind a brand new book out from South Limestone Press. It is called The Narcotic Farm, The Rise and Fall of America's First Prison for Drug Addicts. We're happy to welcome Nancy Campbell and J.P. Olson. Unfortunately, Luke Walden has been felled by illness, so he cannot join us today. But Nancy and J.P., we're really glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Guys, I wanted to start out real quickly uh, with just some background on this. I think just for our listeners who may not be familiar with this. Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this story and how the story of this facility in Lexington, Kentucky, in fact, kind of became known to you guys in the first place. Well, I mean, Nancy and I both uh, arrived at the story from different uh, positions. I can give uh, sort of how I came about uh, finding about the story and then sort of how we came together um, the short version is I was working as an associate producer for a PBS frontline series on drug policy called the Drug Wars. And part of that job was to go up and down the Eastern seaboard, interviewing people who had been on the methadone program uh, for long periods of time. And the interest was to talk to people who remembered the methadone maintenance program coming in under the Nixon administration and sort of what that, what the tenor of the time was and sort of the, the the general perception among drug users at the time of that program. And what I found in speaking with people um, who were in these programs who were at that point, you know, well into their, often their 60s and 70s and had been on the methadone program for, for decades, um, a number of them had been uh, either uh, volunteered or been incarcerated at this facility in Lexington, Kentucky. And people kept talking about, I was in Lexington, I was in Lexington. And the way that these um, people I was interviewing talked about it, um, it was as if they had gone to this really special, important place, like the Harvard of where people who get arrested for drug crimes would go. And a lot of the early stories that I heard were, you know, they were testing LSD here. There was this great jazz culture. Uh, it was on this beautiful plot of land. There were these research scientists. A lot of famous people were there. There were all these things that just made me think, like, either these people are, you know, hallucinating, or there's a really interesting American story here that I'm not sure why I don't know about it. And that set me off on a path of um, researching the facility with Luke and I, and then along the way, we crossed paths with Nancy, who had already been doing research on the same subject in a variety of ways. And so we joined forces and and put together both the book and if this is part of a PBS documentary that um, that we all worked on together as, as well. So it's the, the book is essentially a companion along with the uh, with the film, but that's how I became introduced to the story. And it was, again, it was interviewing people who had been there uh, and the way that they talked about it was so interesting to me. I just thought, I can't believe this isn't already uh, a subject that's been cataloged and created in some kind of narrative that will uh, hopefully stick around for a while so people will understand what this place was, what it means and how to, it relates to today. I've well, I've read, I've read The Man with the Golden Arm. I've read The Farm. I've read Junkie. I've read Kentucky Ham. Um, we're big. Um, yeah, yeah. We're big. Well, I can I can talk a little bit about the way I ran into the story. Uh, part of it was through that kind of cultural production, but I was writing a dissertation in the 1990s on 
drug policy in the 1950s. And there was a hearing in New York City. Um, it was part of the Daniel hearings. Senator Price Daniel had hearings on the illicit narcotics traffic. And at that second hearing in New York, there were a bunch of doctors and researchers and psychiatrists, and they were talking about how drug addiction should not be viewed as a crime, but as a public health problem. And they were all from Lexington, Kentucky. And I, myself, I remember thinking, what did they put in the water in Lexington, Kentucky, that these guys all sounded like they were drug policy reformers in the 1950s, a time of increasing criminalization. And so it, that was, yeah, it was just a teaser at first. And then it grew to becoming a bigger a bigger um, kind of thing on my that weighed on my mind, which was really, yeah, what was this place? What were they doing at this place? What did people at this place experience? And uh, that's how we came together to do the project. Well, that's what I was going to say. I had read all those novels in the past. I've read The Man with the Gold. We've had several Elgrin biographers on the show, well, too, and I had never put two and two together. And then I saw, I, I can't remember where I saw the... Uh, the review of this book and I was like and Mike and I together have decades in recovery and so for us too it has that that aspect as well and it was just the amount of money and creativity and also unethics non-ethical things well, that, yeah well, com that, compassion too but, yeah compassion but, that went into this place you don't yeah. I was just like why can't we do this now but maybe not you well, know with the experimentation I, I wanted to start right. there just uh, you for know, Nancy you because remember because Nancy, yeah. you, you kind of brought this up, and I, I want to make sure we don't get too far ahead of our listeners here. The 1950s, as you just noted yourself, was a time of increased criminality in drug policy. But there was also a commission around this facility and a group of people who wanted to treat it as a public health problem. Can you talk to our listeners about this? Because I think this has real special resonance today. And again, I don't want to get too too far ahead and too into the weeds because I want to make sure our listeners really understand what was going on here. Because I think today when we look at drug policy and drug treatment, many of us know people who are in recovery. Many of us know uh, the scourge, for example, of opiate addiction that is going on in our streets. But people in the 1950s didn't. And so I think it's really important to set that scene. So Nancy, if you could just take us through that a little bit. Sure, I'll take you through that scene, but I want to I want to go back to the man with the golden arm, the first scene of the movie, which was one of the first uh, depictions, Hollywood depictions of um, narcotic addiction and uh, withdrawal. Frank Sinatra actually goes through withdrawal on screen in that in that movie, but that comes out in the mid 1950s. And what's really interesting about it is that the first scene is all about the narcotic farm. It's all about, is the narcotic farm a prison or is the narcotic farm a hospital? And they actually have a conversation in the bar where uh, the main character gets off the bus with a drum that he's bringing from Lexington because he's learned to play jazz drum in 
side the Lexington facility and they have this big conversation about what's going on here. And that's actually the conversation they were having in the 1950s. So during the 1950s, the American Bar Association and um, the American Medical Association, there were a group of doctors and lawyers who became critical of US drug policy, uh, which in 1951 had the first mandatory minimum sentences. And they became critical of criminalization despite the fact that a lot of people during the 50s were trying to increase minimum sentences. They were trying to increase criminalization, set the death penalty for dealers, Wow! right? So all of that hardening stuff is happening in the 50s, but you also have the beginnings. Um, and it's not even the beginnings because the narcotic farm opened in 1935 under the banner of public health. And it basically said this problem, narcotic addiction, should be treated as a public health problem, as a medical problem, right? Uh, and so in a lot of ways, the 50s was uh, still a bit up for grabs. Although the story in the film, right? In the narcotic farm uh, film, you very much see the way in which people who were using drugs experienced what they were doing as, as if it was a crime, right? Law enforcement was really harsh. People were often forced to go cold turkey in jail cells without any kind of medical assistance whatsoever. And so they experienced the narcotic farm as kind of a mecca, a nirvana, because it was the one place in the country where you could count on getting medical assistance through detox and where you had this kind of compassion uh, among the uh, doctors and um, uh, staff, right? Uh, they were trying to figure out how to help people. And they definitely found some ways to help people. And they were also trying to figure out what kinds of treatment um, work, what's, you know, what's effective, what's not. There was a scientific laboratory in the narcotic farm. They're trying to figure out, well, how can we meet this as a public health problem, as a medical problem? I was just, Mike and I were giggling because Algren absolutely hated the way that Sinatra portrayed the withdrawal symptoms and, and having been through withdrawal myself, they're pretty, they're pretty hilarious. <laughs> but your point is, you know, your point is valid that that was, you know, that's popular culture. And I've seen the movie. And like I said, I've probably read that book three or four times and it just never clicked with me until I picked up the, uh, your book and, um, Clarence Cooper's the farm. I just want to mention if anyone's never read it, it's absolutely phenomenal. <clears throat> you were distracted by Kim Novak in that movie. Yes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, so, as everybody is. It's funny. The other uh, the other night, I was watching the film Asphalt Jungle, mm. which I'd never seen, and Lexington get gets mentioned in there as well. I'd never been aware of that, and so it was very much in the culture in the fifties and being promoted in generally a very positive way, um, and sort of to put a button on the fifties, sort of anecdotally in interviewing all of these former either patients or inmates, because there was a distinction, you could volunteer and go there for free treatment, um, or you might be sentenced there because it was determined that you would be a low security risk and it could be that your um, your being arrested was in lieu of trying to get money for a drug problem and you weren't seen as sort of a garden variety dangerous criminal. And so those were, those were the people that were in this facility in terms of um, from the perspective of how did you get there, you either could volunteer or be a prisoner and all in the same grounds, which in itself is extraordinary to think about today. But in, in talking to a lot of the people who were there in the 50s, 
it was really clear to me that, you know, the typical experience of getting arrested at that time, police would take you into, you know, coat rooms and beat on you and, you know, that sort of thing. And as Nancy mentioned, like being forced to, to uh, kick your habit cold turkey in a jail cell from which you can, you know, you could clearly die from that. And so there was this very sort of brutal draconian law enforcement aspect to what was going on in the 50s. And Lexington really was one of the few places where you could go to a federally run, I mean, the, really the only along with a place in the West in Fort Worth where you could go and get treatment that would look at the problem that you had not as a moral failing, but as a actual, you have a medical problem, you have a problem, we're going to treat you like you would treat someone who has diabetes or any other, um, any other, any other disease of that kind. And it really was um, revolutionary in the perspective from a, from a, from a government standpoint. And I would say with very few exceptions, the people that I interviewed who had been both prisoners there and volunteers there spoke very positively about the place. And that plays with our sort of perception. You think of it's a prison and there's a research lab and they're giving people drugs. Obviously it must be terrible. It must be, uh, you know, it must be this, this horrible environment, but all signs from speaking with people who were there would point to something very, much more complex than that. And I often invoke this New Yorker cartoon where an editor is talking to Charles Dickens and he says, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times, surely it can't be both Mr. Dickens. And that is very much the narcotic farm. It is two things at one time. It's not easily, you can't easily come down and say, oh, this is a terrible thing. And there were certainly you know things that went on there that in today's understanding about ethics and how we think about prisoners, would be completely illegal and you'd be run out of town. Um, and so it really is a, um, it's a complicated place, but it, it, it continues to um, inform my understanding. And I know Nancy's and I hope other people who, who get a chance to look at the book, the, the complexity of this issue and attempts that have been made in the past to try to deal with it in a way that is more humane than just locking people up, which we've obviously seen generations of that happening. Let's talk about that a little bit after the break. But first, let me remind everybody, we're talking to Nancy Campbell and J.P. Olson. Luke Walden couldn't be with us. They are the authors of The Narcotic Farm. It's a new book out from South Limestone. There's also a PBS documentary. We're actually going to take a little pause right now and hear some words from this book. As always, we want to thank our reader, Shanna Van Volt. We also want to thank the International Anthem Recording Company for providing the musicians and the backing music for these tracks. You are listening to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. We'll be right back. The narcotic farm's dual roles as prison and hospital reflected a long-standing American ambivalence about addiction. Should drug addicts be punished as criminals, or should they be treated as people with an illness? Both views, still contested today, strongly influenced narco's design. It was a prison built to confine violators of federal drug laws, but its rural setting and architectural style reflected a rehabilitation philosophy known as moral therapy, commonly associated with hospitals and sanatoriums. Moral therapy held that spending time in a wholesome rural setting could cure both immoral behavior and also bad health. In the case of the narcotic farm, addicts, believed to be sick in both body and will, would regain physical and spiritual health through a regimen of good food, clean air, and hard work. The institution's expectation was that its patients would return to society as decent and productive citizens. Lexington, Kentucky's temperate climate, fertile soil, and picturesque location were key factors in its selection as the site for the first narcotic farm. Groundbreaking began in 1932. Three years and $4 million later, the massive building, which covered 12 acres, stood ready to confine and rehabilitate up to 1,500 inmates. 
The institution's size, towering walls, and barred windows powerfully communicated its mission of incarceration. Narco, as the institution was locally known, had a layout typical of other prisons of the time, but its sheer mass was unusual. As former patient Eddie Flowers remembered, I had been in other prisons, Rikers Island, Sing Sing, but the size of that place really made my jaw drop. Despite the institution's overbearing scale, therapeutic ideas were central to its design, which included a spacious chapel and a complex grid of courtyards, allowing for light and ventilation throughout the institution. Patients' day rooms were airy sanctuaries where enormous windows gave expansive views of the rural landscape, while the hope for spiritual rehabilitation was symbolized by vaulted ceilings and arched doorways reminiscent of a monastery. Narco's specialized facilities were meant to manifest the therapeutic potential of medicine, spirituality, and labor. The institution's auto shop and sewing room, with their towering Romanesque window arches, appear in photographs as luminous cathedrals of occupational therapy. Recreational facilities, intended to instill values of sportsmanship and fair play, included tennis courts, a softball diamond, a gymnasium, and a bowling alley. Well-equipped medical, surgical, and dental suites affirmed Narco's commitment to help a diseased population. The idealistic goal of rehabilitating the nation's drug addicts captured the public imagination, and Narco's opening made front-page news. There was even a local newspaper contest to name the new institution. Enthusiastic readers suggested such names as Beneficial Farm, Courageous Hospital, and the U.S. Greatest Gift to Lift Mankind Sanatorium. More fanciful entries included Dream Castle, Big Shot Drug Farm, and Alpha Government Home. In the end, the government chose a name whose agricultural associations inscribed the ideals of a moral therapy in the very walls of the institution. Over the main entrance, carved in stone, the institution bore the words, United States Narcotic Farm. That was a selection from a brand new book out from South Limestone. It's called The Narcotic Farm, and we are fortunate enough today to be talking to Nancy Campbell and J.P. Olson, a third member of the team behind that. Luke Walden, unfortunately, is out sick, so cannot join us. Uh, before the break, uh, J.P., we were saying that the narcotic farm was a complex place uh, doing both good things and bad things. Let's talk for a little bit about the good things. Because I think as we've established beforehand in the 1950s, it was fairly revolutionary for drug addicts to be treated, first of all, humanely at all, but second, for it to be treated as a public health and a medical problem. Um, can we talk a little bit about some of the um, insights and procedures that came out of how Lexington, Kentucky ran its place? And maybe talk a little bit about why it also became a mecca for so much of American culture during that point, because as you guys make the point in the book, it became a, a center for American jazz musicians. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, certainly advances and treatments that are still in, in use today and highly effective. And Nancy can speak on this in much more detail, but buprenorphine came directly out of uh, Lexington. Uh, naltrexone, I believe, also uh, came out of uh, Lexington's um, using methadone as a way of um, allowing people to detox in a way that would be less painful, which is important for a number of reasons. One, it, it, it allows a person who is trying to talk, stop taking the drug not to experience terrible pain, uh, which would be discouraging to try to seek treatment in the first place. So there's all kinds of um, examples of that. Um, toward the end of the time of the research lab, uh, it, the receptors in the brain that we now understand uh, play a vital role in addiction um, were identified. 
Um, and I, I think, you know, list goes on and on. I think the, there, there are the medical advances, which are very important. And it's worth noting that initially the institution was started, the, the research lab in particular called the Addiction Research Center was started uh, in part to find a, a, a non-addictive painkiller because it was understood that people could become addicted to uh, opioids in, in um, the process of, of treating pain. Um, that obviously emerged, evolved into a much broader mission that again, Nancy could speak to at length and is fascinating. Um, but I think that it's important to look at that institution in the same way that we look at the Kinsey Institute as a place where uh, it's a taboo subject being studied in a somewhat remote area um, but val but valuable insight is gained from it. Lexington is a very similar place in that way. And with anything to do with these kinds of issues, you're going to be on, you know, not to be dramatic, but a bit of a razor's edge and ethical questions will emerge that will not look so good in the light of day. But I think on balance, if you look at the medical treatments that were offered um, and the breakthroughs that um, were developed because of this unique institution where you had, you know, as Nancy speaks about the, um, a captive population of people who were willing to try out different substances to see how they would affect people. That was great research material. We would see it very differently now, but um, in, in that period of time, uh, that was considered an unethical way to do this. So I think there's a, there's a medical component that was quite successful. There's the treatment regimen, which, you know, we're still with it today where it's very, very difficult to predict the outcome of uh, whether or not certain kinds of treatments will work. But I would say people coming to the institution for help were not abused uh, by any accounts that I've heard um, by the staff. Uh, and certainly as compared to going to a prison at a time like Leavenworth or Atlanta or one of these places where people would really uh, be abused. It, it was an unusual, uh, it was an unusual place that both looked at the issue of addiction from a medical standpoint and from a sociological uh, psychological one. Um, so, but Nancy can speak, I mean, really deeply about all of the advances and the importance that they hold today. They're still in use, have saved lives, revived people, all kinds of things. Sure. I think that um, the main contribution really of the narcotic farm was to shift attitudes uh, at least the attitudes of some people uh, from this idea that addiction was uh, a, a moral failing or a, a moral weakness to a scientific footing. And so you have to imagine a time when uh, people really did not think of addiction as affecting the neurochemistry of the brain. Uh, the people at the narcotic farm believed that addiction was a chronic and relapsing disease a neural, neurological uh, condition. And they also believed that anyone could become uh, addicted if they were exposed to the dosage of an opioid. And so the, um, the kinds of studies that they produced were really uh, the only studies in, in much of the world that were how do humans respond to, in particular, they studied opioids. That was kind of their specialization, but they also studied uh, other drugs, including legal uh, pharmaceutical medications. And they studied, well, how did people respond to them? How do they feel about them? They studied subjective experience of different 
types of drugs. And they tried to really understand people kind of within on their own terms, on scientific terms. Now, the problem, though, is that you're talking about 1500 people in an institution. It's a very large institution. And of course, people are uh, the the research laboratory was a very tiny part of it, and so uh, there was a lot going on. If Luke were here, he would remind us that Lexington uh, operated almost like an American small town. And when you think about all of the different kinds of vocations they taught, they gave people vocational training. They could become auto mechanics or printers or um, people who had skilled trades. Uh, they could also work in the kitchens, in the gardens. It was an actual farm. It was a working farm. They grew um, much of their own food, much of their own produce, 95% of their own pork products. They milked cows in the morning. They had um, recreation recreational opportunities. They actually logged the number of hours a month the residents uh, spent bowling or playing billiards. In other words, this was a place where there was a lot going on. People could play tennis, they could play golf. Um, it, was, it was a rather unusual, quote, prison, right? Because uh, it had such a surround, it surrounded people with um, what we would call today alternative reinforcers, right? Their idea was, let's give some people something else to do, right, besides drugs and besides talking about drugs. Now, the fact is that a lot of people were there specifically, um, not necessarily uh, to stop using drugs or to, to uh, truly quit, but to work their habit down to something affordable, or because they were made to come by judges or by uh, parents or spouses who asked them essentially to go dry out um, at the narcotic farm. And so there was a lot of talk about drugs and the um, music scene came, I think, very much out of a culture that was interested constantly in the kinds of subjective experiences uh, that people had doing drugs and the kind of jazz music, which I think JP is much better at talking about than I am. So I'll turn that over uh, to him. But the fact is that, that all of that the jazz concerts, the practice rooms, the huge auditorium. It was the second largest auditorium in the entire state of Kentucky. The kind of dancing, the kind of interaction. This was also a mixed gender institution. So there were women as well as men. There were always a smaller amount of women, maybe 300 at tops, uh, whereas uh, the male population could go up as high as 1,200. And so there were there was a lot going on. There was a lot going on uh, officially and unofficially, right? There was interaction between people. There were softball games, right? There were kiting, uh, which were uh, the exchanging of notes um, in various ways through the prison. There were romances. There were all kinds of relationships uh, built. Uh, people learned to do woodworking. They, they were artists. Uh, they were painters. They were, um, they, they produced a magazine. The, um, you know, so there was a lot really going on. It was an entire uh, culture. An entire small town. And that's a good place to take a break. We do need to remind folks of the people that uh, do support this station. So after the break, we're going to return with the authors and the team behind the book, The Narcotic Farm. I want to remind everybody you are listening to I-94 right here 
on WLPN, Lumpen Radio Chicago, 105.5 FM. We'll be right back. This summer on I-94, Joe Mino, Makita Brotman, Nancy DeCampel, J.P. Olson and Luke Walden, Tom Lynn, Atticus Lish, Paget Powell, Peter Cameron, Margo Mifflin, Chris Ware, and many, many more. Only on Lumpen's Books and Literature show, I-94, every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Narco's admission process was similar to that of any federal prison. Upon arrival, convicts and volunteers were photographed, issued a number, and strip-searched. Their shoe soles and boot heels were pried open by security staff, vigilantly searching for dope. If any needles or dope were discovered, volunteers frequently arrived stoned and transporting paraphernalia. They were confiscated. Patients were then handed hospital pajamas and sent to the medical ward for a complete physical. As part of the admission process, volunteers and inmates were compelled to fill out government forms detailing their complete history of drug use. How old were you when you started? What is your drug of choice? How big is your habit? How many times have you tried to quit? Afterward, patients underwent psychological tests designed to assess the severity of their addiction. Barring acute medical emergencies, volunteers were then sent to the detoxification ward. Federal convicts were typically already drug-free when they were transported to the institution. On the detox ward, nurses administered morphine shots of gradually decreasing dosages for a safe withdrawal. After 1948, methadone, which was first experimentally tested on inmates inside the institution, was substituted for morphine. Throughout the institution's 40-year history, the detox process remained essentially unchanged. Usually, upwards of a dozen people were detoxified at one time. Men and women were detoxed separately. Former patients recall that nurses doled out barbiturates, known as goofballs, to blunt the effects of opiate withdrawal. Patients were also treated with flow baths, essentially a primitive jacuzzi, to help soothe their frayed nerves. Patients' recollections of detox vary. John Stallone, who had kicked drugs numerous times before, remembers the Lexington cure as very pleasant. To author William S. Burroughs, however, who showed up in the late 1940s and recounted his experience in the semi-autobiographical novel Junkie, detox at Narco merely delayed and suspended the sickness of heroin withdrawal. Yet Burroughs was likely in the minority. Most addicts preferred detoxing at Lexington to going cold turkey in city and county jails where, reputation had it, lawmen harassed and sometimes savagely beat those who complained about their suffering. In all, detoxification lasted slightly less than two weeks. Patients were then sent into the general prison population so rehabilitation could begin. Welcome back once again to I-94. My name, again, is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. Mr. Michael Sackett. Hello. And we have been speaking with the authors of the book, The Narcotic Farm. We are today joined by Nancy Campbell and J.P. Olson. Unfortunately, Luke Walden couldn't make it. Uh, And you just heard another excerpt, actually, from that book coming out of the break. And before the break, we were talking about the culture. Nancy was talking about that at the uh, the prison. J.P. was talking about the jazz scene. And I think, Mike, it's a good time. Well, I wanted to give listeners it's just kind of a little aesthetic feel for the book as much as we mm-hmm. can over the radio. Yeah, it's uh, eight and a, I think eight and a half by eleven hardcover. It's it's set up almost like a scrapbook. A lot of photos, a lot of black, a lot of great photos, Photo and documentary, and yeah. uh, 
and with, uh, I don't know, page one to two page intros for each section. Were uh, those pulled from the documentary, that, by the way? That's yeah. one of the things I was going to ask yeah. is where the uh, yeah. what archive yeah. it was pulled from. I also wanted to ask if the rights were hard to obtain because of the medical aspect. That's a really good question. Um, the, the archival, uh, yeah, the, 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 what happened was Luke and I were working on the documentary and we came across, you know, in, in search of this being, being an archival film, we were just amassing this huge archive of um, photographs from around the country, honestly, um, national, uh, uh, the National Archives, Library of Congress, um, multiple newspaper morgues, as they're called, um, the DEA library, a number of university libraries, we went all over them, and not to mention um, people who had worked in the institution in and around Lexington were extremely generous, mm-hmm. handing over all kinds of material. We, we ended up getting something like 10,000 images. The Kentucky Historical Society was hugely important in all of this. They had a whole archive that essentially had been sitting there, kind of, you know, people had a sense that there was something there, but no one ever asked for it. So it took months for the archive to put it together in a way so we could go through it and and use that. So we have a huge debt to the Kentucky Historical Society. Um, the rights issues, it's a good question. I mean, the HIPAA laws, kind of like the Patriot Act, you can just throw them up. And the HIPAA laws are, you know, for people who aren't familiar, the idea is to make sure that medical information isn't released into the public, but it's also oftentimes can be used to just stop any kind of research into anything. Um, I think the nuances of it being a medical facility and the fact that these archives or these photos, many of them either were intended for publication or already published, mm. probably had something to do with it. I mean, you probably have to talk to the individual archives about what the right scenarios were, but we didn't run into too many issues because a lot of these were federally produced. And ethically speaking, you know, most of the people in these photographs, it's 30s, 40s, and 50s, these people are long gone, names aren't associated. So we felt comfortable using these as part of a, uh, an overall history. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a long process. I mean, Luke and I went into it um, for material searches between films and photographs and audio uh, over a year of research in that time. Um, so uh, so yeah, it was a long uh, it was a long research project for sure uh, that got us to the point. And then also Nancy obviously contributed uh, mightily with uh, research papers and also some photos as well from various. Um, you know, in different institutions, but there was no single archive that existed. Like we really did put it together uh, on our own and it took quite a bit of time. It's not like we just knocked on the door of the University of Kentucky and said, we'd love, you know, an archive of 10,000 photographs. Like that's just <laughs> not how it came together. So it was a real journey to get that all together. Um, is the DEA library, uh, a, uh, is it publicly accessible or do you have to get yeah. Well, yeah, I would love to yeah. check that out. <laughs> I'm a librarian. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a good it's a good archive to visit. Um, yeah. The um, the interesting thing. So I'm a historian of science and medicine, and uh, scientists often have a box or two from their predecessor, and um, they they don't think of that kind of historical material as valuable because science, of course, moves along. And uh, why is any why would anyone be interested in the former? paradigm. And so uh, they often had things kicking about the laboratory. um, And that that was really interesting uh, to discover. Because uh, as uh, JP was uh, saying earlier, a lot of the scientists in this field, because this was the only place where human 
clinical um, testing and research was going on for so long, um, many of them, this was formative science, right? So this really set the, um, set the paradigm. And um, so everyone uh, had to, in a sense, um, uh, they, they didn't necessarily value the work that was done um, before them. Uh, so they didn't really need to give permission or anything because, um, in fact, uh, everything was published. So one of the interesting things about the narcotic farm, people often think that because they did research for the um, on LSD, that it was a clandestine form of research. And it wasn't. It was all published in uh, uh, ordinary peer-reviewed scientific and medical journals. It must have been with the MK Ultra thing to people associate it with, I'm, I'm assuming. Well, let's let's talk about that because I mean I think we've brought that up at the start. You know, there were good things and bad things, and one of the ethical things was the what we would consider perhaps today experimentation on people with novel substances. Can we can we talk a little bit about that and what what actually went on at the farm? Because even though it was peer reviewed and and obviously widely documented, uh, today we would have a different ethical take on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. In the early fifties, if you were um, experimenting uh, with LSD, and many, many people were, 80 different laboratories in North America, that is Canada and the U.S., were doing experiments with LSD. And the Narcotic Farm Laboratory, by then it was called the Addiction Research Center, was one of those. And LSD was a very widely studied substance. Um, what was different about LSD for the narcotic farm folks was that they were used to studying opioids. So they were used to studying um, tolerance basically substances to which the human body and brain adapts and builds up tolerance. And so they were very interested in LSD because it did not seem to be working in exactly the same way. Um, Tolerance is very rapid with LSD. And so you don't have effects with LSD, um, uh, you know, um, rather rapidly. And so they were very interested in that substance because uh, by that time they had been uh, doing all of these experiments for many, many years, but largely with um, people who were either heroin or morphine users. And and to add something that sort of, again, the context of this, it's the best of times, worst of times, sort of ambivalent feeling that I think anyone would have looking at this institution, the great things came out of it. Um, and uh, I should say that I don't that I'm not aware of anyone who died because of experimentation. I think it's fair to say that people who were in the research programming were used as research subjects. One, I think the enticements that were going on would be problematic today. Um, and secondly, I, because there was no follow-up on what happened to those people, I think you can come down pretty hard and say, well, you've used people in the, in the realm of science to understand something, but you haven't done any follow-ups to see if they're okay. And I would imagine that, uh, you know, long-term maintenance on any particular drug for research is not help, is not helpful for a person in recovery. And for that reason, people get upset. And I understand why. I mean, it's a different time and place. And to illustrate that, when I was doing the research, um, I remember coming across uh, Senate testimony of Bobby Kennedy asking why funding for LSD research had been suspended because he had found it extremely helpful in couples therapy with his wife. And so in 1961 or two, you have Bobby Kennedy saying, why don't we have more money for LSD? (laughs) 
That's amazing. So that's to, yeah, it's to kind of place it in a context. Well, it's not exactly something, sometimes things are they, as they appear and sometimes they are not. And so there were all kinds of things that were kind of surprising about that within that realm. This is my theory about this is that part of the reason why the CIA was so interested in understanding more about LSD. And as Nancy said, I mean, this was LSD research for the CIA was going through virtually every institution, University of Wisconsin, you know, University of Illinois, tons of them. Um, uh, and um, one of the things that came up that I thought was interesting in speaking with people who were there at the time who were either tangentially involved in LSD research at that time or involved in it directly at a later time, my theory, and again, I don't want to spread lore, but my theory is there was at least an interest in the CIA um, understanding the properties of LSD in part because there was a concern that LSD might be used as a kind of, you know, as a, as a drug to manipulate behavior. And so could you maintain a person on LSD and um, how would they function? And so I don't know if this is the case, but it would make sense understanding sort of the time and the discussions that, that patients at the narcotic farm who were in these LSD tests, they were trying to see how much LSD could a person take and still behave seemingly normally, like sit down and read a newspaper or something to that effect. And what they found very rapidly was that the tolerance for this drug builds up very uh, rapidly. And so large doses of LSD were being given to people, I think in part to understand, well, could this be a drug that you could potentially maintain someone on if they're in a high security position, make it up a, you know, a diplomat in Russia. And like, if you're worried that the Russian government is trying to dose you with LSD, is there a way to protect yourself, you know, prophylactically by taking the drug? Now, is that true? I don't know, but it certainly was something, it was something that came up um, in putting a number of things together, but it was clear that the LSD, LSD, that the CIA was interested in weaponizing the drug in some way, and they were interested in using the drug to control behavior. I think, as anyone knows, um, LSD is highly unpredictable, and as a certain over a certain period of time, my instinct is that the CIA just saw, okay, this is not working, and they just bailed on it. Um, but at the same time that these clandestine and they certainly were clandestine operations were going on in the public at the time, late fifties, early sixties, you've got people like Gregory Peck taking LSD for, uh, for therapy and, and others, it was sort of de rigueur, um, among, you know, sort of, uh, moneyed, sophisticated, well educated people I mean, park Avenue was handing out LSD like crazy at this time. So what we see as LSD now in terms of its threat was perceived I think you could say uh, certainly different than it would be today. Um, and I think one of the things that's worth mentioning, not fully in defense of it, but I think that, you know, certainly that the researchers at the narcotic farm were really surprised to find out in the mid sixties when LSD became a drug of abuse or experimentation, because they just had no idea that anybody would want to go through that kind of experience for fun. You know, so the way that this drug was, thought about at the time is very different. I mean, that doesn't excuse the kinds of things where you have in New York City safe houses where you're dosing people on LSD just to see what happened. That's a whole other thing. But but within the within the narcotic farm, they were trying to understand what does this drug do? And to be fair, it's a center for drug research in the country at that time. So if you're not going to do it there, it's not going to get done. And so again, it's Nancy and I and Luke all have been in this position where it's like, what are we defending here exactly? And really, because it's so much part of a counter narrative. Because well, the idea 
again, it's like, you know, drugs, research, government money, LSD, gotta be terrible. It's like, sure. Well, I want to, I want it, it's complex. I don't think it's, it's, it's quite black and white. Um, but one yeah. of the things the, the photos depict really well is, is the architecture and landscape of hmm. uh, the narcotic farm. And it's uh, the, the art deco construction. It, sort of, it looks like it was a wide open, calm, bucolic setting. Um, cows, cows it, on it, the field. Yeah, well, and you don't have to think historically too long before you realize like, whoa, the, all this money was spent on construction and staff during the Great Depression. Uh, with, yeah. with public funds. And so one of the arguments that I think was running through my mind throughout the book is this idea of this being a public problem versus an individual doing it to themselves. And later on in the book, there's a, I take statistics with a grain of salt, but there's, there's a percentage in there that says like 93% of people who came through the farm relapsed. A mm -hmm. lot of them on the first day they were out. So it, it, it might lead a lot of people to say, you know, it doesn't work. But I think what, what it really begs the question of is, is it, is it the individual or is it the society they're rejoining when they come out of the, the narcotic farm? And I wanted to right. see if it's if that's anything you've looked into. Yeah. So uh, one of the main people at the research lab was a guy named Abraham Wickler. And he was really interested in that question, the question of relapse, because that has been the question, um, as many people know, uh, from their own, the experience of their own lives. Uh, this is a relapsing condition. And the question is always why? What motivates relapse? Why is relapse so common? Uh, it's as common today as it was at, back at the narcotic farm. Uh, the, the narcotic farm itself, we can think of as a revolving door. Right. There were people who were at the narcotic farm multiple times. There was one guy, I think he, he earned the most where he was there 44 times in his life. And if he was ever sent to another prison, they would uh, uh, transfer him to the narcotic farm because he was their patient. Um, and so it's a really uh, relapse is a really big question. So what Abraham Wickler was interested in was why did people who had not um, had an opioid drug for months, why did they experience withdrawal when they were returning to their neighborhood, when they're on the bus or the train or in a car and they're going back into their neighborhood? Why do they start experiencing such a strong craving and even feel like they are in withdrawal? And he investigated that scientifically and he came up with a theory that actually there were social cues. And so that language we have today about cues and triggers is a language that came from the narcotic farm, from the science and from that integration between the social world and the individual. And what is it, right, that's motivating relapse? Because it's often the social world, right, that is cueing you to use again because you have used in that place before. I mean, you think about uh, the 12 step person places and things. Triggers, right? yeah, I was thinking about that. And 7% to me, I've, I've been in recovery for 17 years straight. It seems pretty good to me. I mean, I know and if you look at it from a statistical standpoint, it doesn't look like a great thing, but you know, that's seven out of a hundred people getting clean. And to me, that's not bad. <laughs> And, and one of the things to remember in that is 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 that's not factoring in necessarily the fact that someone may have relapsed, but they didn't die, and then they eventually it took. And yeah. so that's the way to look at it because yes, you know, and I think as anyone knows, I've had friends who has been in recovery, 
you know, it's not uncommon that you'll relapse after your your first, you know, treatment, uh, stay in a treatment facility. And in fact, that's the norm. And so I think that if, as, as time goes on, there's a little more nuanced understanding that that may sound like a low number to justify to, uh, you know, a, a, a Congress that's, you know, trying to make sure that every bit of tax money is being spent in a way that's defensible and that not. And so I think that, um, but as we, as we go on in this, there's a way to look at this was that people would come to this institution who are probably going to die if they were going to continue to do this. And this is, you know, the same story that you hear with people who say prison saved their life. It's no different. And in fact, it was a much more humane environment than any prison, um, certainly at the time and probably in some ways even now. I mean, they look at the facilities that are available. It's like it really is quite extraordinary to think of a facility where you have both volunteers and convicted felons working together, milking cows, playing tennis, going down to listen to a jazz show. I mean, it really is like a fall through the looking glass in a time and place that won't be repeated likely and was large part why we were so interested in this project just to, re to preserve that. And I wanted to just jump in for a sec because we didn't get too deep into jazz and I'll keep it snappy, but I think it's, um, it is a big part of the definition what defined that institution was a creative culture of people. The jazz world obviously has had uh, drug use, particularly in the 40s and 50s. It's legendary. Virtually every musician you can imagine had either experiences with it or had bandmates who were experiencing it. Um, in my research, uh, you know, Frank Foster, among others, who's a horn player, would talk about going into you know, playing in a band, half the band were falling like falling off the bandstand because they were on heroin. It was a huge problem. And and one of the questions that I was always asking myself is why heroin, why jazz? I don't think it's an easy answer, but there are a number of things that were going on. One, it's nightlife, which it's just that's where drugs and alcohol are going to be more likely used because people are relaxing, having fun. Um, there's also an interesting, um, there's an interesting thing, which is that um, during the war effort, all of these older musicians were, were going off to war, but there were some who stayed back in part because they had drug uh, issues or they didn't want to serve, et cetera. And so music continued. So you had really young people, 15, 16, 17 year old kids going on the road with musicians, some of whom were quite experienced with with drug use and there's some speculation that that had something to do with it and along with that and the end of the war and the opening of of shipping routes and then you have all of this ability to uh to transport drugs back and forth and you have this explosion of availability of the drug and as we know you know supply does drive demand in cases of addictive drugs so you have this sort of perfect storm coming together with um jazz musicians and so by the mid 50s i mean it was already at that point at peak, but you had large numbers of jazz musicians who were both getting arrested and also unfortunately informing on one another uh, to stay out of long, long sentences. So you have this kind of ugly combination where you've got people really uh, being put in a position of having to serve 20 years or name some names. And that's something that the jazz world doesn't really like to talk about for understandable reasons. But uh, I suspect that that's not a small part uh, because as, as we all know, it's pretty easy to arrest a person who's in a desperate situation to buy drugs because all you have to do is follow that person to where it is that they're getting the drugs and arrest them. So they're easy arrests. And I think that that's part of the reason. But as a result of that sort of confluence of events, you had this very rich jazz culture within the institution and a feeling among many of the staff to encourage playing music to the point where Tad Dameron, who's one of the great 
uh, jazz composers, um, lesser known, I think largely because his career was cut short because of drug use. He charted and recorded a record in Lexington with the permission of the institution, he's sitting there writing the sheet music and sending it out to have a band record a record for on Riverside while in the institution. Plus within the institution itself, you had large number of bands, as many as six at a time. Uh, Wayne Kramer, who is a musician from the MC5, was oh, in yeah, the institution. Yeah, we're very familiar with Wayne. <laughs> yeah, good Detroit, good Detroit musician, yeah. We actually, JP, we got to yeah. cut it off right there because we're running out of time. But I do want to remind everybody we've been speaking with Nancy Campbell, JP Olson. Uh, they're the team behind the Narcotic Farm. Unfortunately, uh, Luke Walden cannot join us today. The book is out on South Limestone. I assume you can see the documentary on PBS On Demand. Everything is on demand these days. Am I correct, JP? Uh, actually, it's the, there's a Vimeo link, but if you look up Vimeo and the Narcotic Farm, you can find it. We'll find it there. I watched. It's great. With that, we're going to say goodbye. We're going to leave with a final excerpt from their book. Once again, thanks to our reader, Shan Van Volt. Once again, thanks to the International Anthem Recording Company. And thank you, Nancy and JP, for spending time with us today and talking about your new project. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Nice talking. By the mid-1950s, Lexington had become an elite fraternity for addicts as well as the epicenter of drug culture in America. The soundtrack of the new junkie subculture was jazz, and some of this country's best jazz was played at Narco. Heroin and jazz were so closely linked that many distinguished artists of the era, Cab Calloway, Dizzy Gillespie and Duke Ellington, and others, spoke bitterly to the press about how the drug was devastating a generation of gifted musicians and how these musicians, desperate for heroin, were easy marks for law enforcement. Less openly discussed by those in the scene was the fact that some players, pressured by draconian drug laws of the time, avoided arrest by becoming informants who in turn helped imprison their peers. Along the way, many musicians spent a few days, a few weeks, or even years at the Lexington Narcotics Hospital. The list of jazz players at Lex reads like a who's who of the genre. Chet Baker, Elvin Jones, Stan Levy, Jackie McLean, Red Rodney, Sonny Rollins, and many others. In fact, among jazz fans, the institution soon acquired a reputation as a workshop for musicians. On the streets of New York and Chicago, the lore was that young musicians were checking themselves into notorious institution merely for the opportunity to sit in with the masters. Even Frank Sinatra's character, Frankie Machine, when the man with the golden arm, begins the film by excitedly telling his pals that he's just returned from the Lexington Hospital. Now clean, Sinatra's character describes Narco as a compassionate place whose treatment regimen embraces musicians, a place where prison doctors encourage him to play drums as part of his therapy. This Hollywood portrayal is more accurate than not. Throughout its history, Narco supplied musicians with serviceable instruments, practice rooms, and an audience of incarcerated addicts eager to pack the institution's 1,300-seat theater for spectacular inmate-produced shows featuring a variety of big bands and combos. At one time, there were as many as half a dozen jazz combos performing inside the institution. The shows were a source of joy for the inmates, the staff, and even hip locals from Lexington who came to hear big city jazz right at home in Kentucky. The first time I went there, I heard Tad Dameron, Sonny Stitt, Joe Guy, and many others, recalls Byron Romanowitz, a Lexington-based musician who watched several prison jazz shows in the late 1940s and 1950s. Their big band was an all-star group, there's no question about it. Regrettably, there are no known recordings of the prison jazz bands that played at Lexington. The only legacy is in recollections, photographs, and snippets of silent films. But for one night in 1964, the swinging sounds of jazz at Lex filled living rooms across the country. An orchestra made up of Lexington patients performed for the nation on Johnny Carson's The Tonight Show. It was the highest profile gig in the prison's history, 
but mainstream fame was fleeting. The tapes from this broadcast were accidentally erased decades ago. It was the greatest band you never heard. Lumpin' Radio's books and literature program airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This episode featured Nancy Campbell, J.D. Olson, and Luke Walden, the curators of Narcotic Farm, The Rise and Fall of America's First Prison for Drug Addicts, out now from South Limestone. This episode originally aired on July 29, 2021. I-94 is a Lumpin' Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, Music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. <laughs>